Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Today, we have the opportunity to sit down with Yasmin Salas, a partner in the healthcare investment banking group at Goldman Sachs. Yas leads their medical device banking practice at the firm and has had an incredible career, having been involved in and having led some of the most important medtech transactions of the last decade. In addition to her day-to-day at Goldman, she also co-leads the undergraduate and MBA recruiting efforts at Goldman Sachs for her alma mater, Georgetown. And she's also an avid supporter of our mission here at Scholars of Finance. In this conversation, Yas takes us behind the scenes in her role at GS. She shares how the healthcare landscape is evolving, some of the unique intricacies of healthcare banking, and she explains the real impact that finance leaders can have supporting the healthcare sector. For our students and early career listeners, she also dives into critical tips about investment banking recruiting. And for more senior leaders and managers listening, she also shares some insights on how to attract, retain, and develop the best talent in the world. And now we want to dive right into this insightful conversation. So without further delay, we bring you Yasmin Salas. Yas, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast today. I have really been looking forward to this. First and foremost, how are you and where are you calling in from? I'm doing great in New York City on a nice, brisk Friday afternoon. No complaints here. Well, I'm glad that there's nothing to complain about with the New York weather around this season. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say, I am so excited to jump right in, Yoss. You know, we've built a friendship over several years now after Skylar DeBar introduced us way back when. You've become a big supporter of Scholars of Finance, right? Supporting us financially becoming a close friend, offering guidance and advice along the way as we build this organization. And I've been itching to have you on the podcast. I'm glad we found the time amidst your busy schedule and all the deals that your team is successfully executing. I want to jump right in. I have so many questions I hope we can get through. To jump right off, tell us first at a high level, our audience, a little bit about your background and your story, how you got interested in finance and your current role at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, a great question, and thanks for having me on. So my story actually began 6,000 miles away in Iran. So I was born in Iran, but ultimately grew up in the U.S. And I went to Georgetown to pursue a career in foreign service. Ultimately, I pivoted course. I stayed on. I got my MBA and got exposed to finance. I'd really not had exposure to that as an undergrad. And I've been lucky enough to spend the last 18 years at Goldman Sachs and always in New York, always in the healthcare group at Goldman. And I would say really the mission, the vision, the leadership in our group, in the healthcare group has been a great fit for me. And now I'm lucky to be a partner of the firm leading our medical device franchise, working with the most talented investment bankers in the world, working with our clients. Yeah. And I think the results of your time at Goldman Sachs speak for themselves to like to see the deal volume that is coming out of your group and the healthcare group is absolutely incredible. I've really appreciated our conversations over the years about the impact that you are making through your work. I oftentimes tell our students in SOF, you know, I'll sort of say something like, you know, you want to think of the areas in finance where you can do the most good for society, you know, like healthcare investment banking or venture capital and 
or ed tech, mm-hmm. you know, VC, healthcare investment banking is always one of the top on my list because you are literally helping drive growth and efficiency in the system that keeps us all alive and well, right? I'm really curious to hear more about your experience in the healthcare group. What's driven the passion for the work? Some of the elements of your work that you found most rewarding. So I share all of the sentiment that you just expressed. We have the great luxury and privilege to work with companies that are saving lives, extending lives, improving efficiencies in the healthcare system. And we get to have a front row seat at their most important milestone events, whether that's a transformative transaction on the M&A side, a separation, capital raises. And often, especially when it comes to some of the situations where a company is ultimately sold, they can be quite emotional because we deal and get to interact and advise entrepreneurs that have built businesses for not just a few years, but decades. And to come to this culminating event, which in many ways is an amazing milestone and one that's great for their shareholders, great for their employees, and actually great for patients because it extends the reach of their products, it's still a difficult moment in those final board meetings. And so for me, being in those tender moments, being able to advise and make sure each of the constituents feel like they have done right by their shareholders, by their employees and patients, that's a real privilege. It's hard not to be driven by that for myself, for our team that gets to be a part of these transactions. That's what really brings it all together because the reality is for the first, I don't know, five, 10 years, what you feel like you're probably doing is just PowerPoints and Excel. And to actually see and be in the moments, and that's maybe one of the positives of Zoom, frankly, where people, the full team can now be in some of these board meetings and seeing some of these moments where historically it would have all been live and only a few people get to go. So there's a lot to talk about within all of that, but it's an easy career to continue to extend. I really appreciate you sharing that because oftentimes when I'm talking to our students or even our recent graduates, they lament the, you know, 80 hour weeks, the long weeks, I'm going to sell my soul. They'll joke for a couple of years. How am I going to have friends in a social life? First, what I'll oftentimes tell them is you have to have a purpose greater than yourself that you're serving, right? To bring you through those sort of years where you pay your dues, if you will. Second, you need to operate patiently and think long-term and recognize that you said five to 10 years of presentations and decks and spreadsheets ultimately is adding value, A, and B is affording you the experience and the understanding so that you can become a managing director or a partner. You can lead deals. You are in those board meetings and you are advising those entrepreneurs who are in such a pivotal moment in their lives and careers, I mean, their journeys. And one thing I I also really appreciate in you sharing what your experience has been like is, is the sense of purpose that you personally have. There are a lot of things that you've been really, really passionate about that we've talked about, whether it's health, it's your role, of course, your family, your kids, supporting women. A couple of things I want to double click on here because I'm sure a lot of our listeners might think a partner at Goldman Sachs over 18 years, how could you have done anything but work and work and work, right? There's a lot of people who have this misconception, especially younger professionals. First thing I want to double click on is your family. You have protected your time with your family. You've prioritized your family. You're really close to your kids. You talk about them every time I see you for our regular catch-ups. Can you talk a little bit about how you have prioritized family and protected family and really balanced your life becoming a partner at Goldman Sachs with having a rich and robust life at home. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I actually think today is a good example of that. You were very generous and able to move the timing of our conversation, but it was another example of where my son was had a debate competition. He happened to be in the finals of that, which we weren't expecting, and it happened to be this morning. And so the reality is I have prioritized. You can only prioritize so many things in life. You can't prioritize them all at the same time is the reality. But for me, I would say my priority for most of the day is around my clients and the MedTech franchise. And that's where I spend the bulk of my time. So my clients' priorities are there for my priorities. But being able to protect the weekends and certain events with the kids is something that I really try to do. And maybe most importantly, when I'm actually home trying to be present, it's really hard in the world of emails and just always on and Zooms. But that's ongoing work. You have to work at it because otherwise you can easily just be working all 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so just having those priorities is what's helped me. And having sort of partners and colleagues like you that get it, that understand it, that helps as well. I actually find sharing, bringing my whole self both to the office, to my clients, to my friends actually makes everything easier because then when I have an emergency of some sort, it's understandable and we can all move on from it. But it certainly isn't easy. Right. I completely understand. And I don't have nearly the amount on my plate. I'm just trying to juggle running the startup plus planning for a wedding. And I think I'm in over my head. That's but a lot. You know, Either of those things on their own would be a lot, by the way. I'll listen to this recording once I'm a few years into having two children. And I'll probably laugh at my younger self for complaining ever about my current stage. I appreciate you sharing. One thing that you've prioritized, one of your passions is helping women succeed and advance in finance. You and I actually connected on this as a shared passion of ours. For me, because of my mother's story in finance, for you, you've gone through the journey yourself, of course. Can you speak a little bit to your passion for helping women succeed in financial services? Yeah. I mean, first I have to say you're sharing your mother's story. Her inspiration is part of why I've been so impressed with you and your organization, your vision. I find it very authentic. And frankly, the fact that you're surrounded by impressive women with your fiance and what she's doing in the healthcare profession. And so you're surrounded by successful women, which is also impressive. So look, as it relates to me and my passion for helping women succeed, the reality is we still have work to do in financial services. I'm committed to doing the work together. I think what we can continue to do is show women that you can have a career in finance, that it's achievable. It's not easy right? It's not necessarily meant to say it's an easy thing to do, but it's doable. And you don't have to sidetrack or delay having a family. I think in any profession, whether it's a startup, whether it's being a physician, it's a lot of hours, it's a lot of commitment, but it doesn't mean you can't also have a family and have kids. And so, as you know, I have three boys. I try to inspire and encourage more women to have a career in finance and bringing my whole self to work, as I just mentioned earlier, All of my colleagues know about my kids, my husband, my family, the good, the drama, the impossibility of it all. And so I think for me, it's the more we can do to encourage women to be in any profession, whether it's financial services or otherwise, and to not step off the treadmill for various reasons is something that I'm going to continue to do, but we still have work to do. Yes, I appreciate first the very kind words. Thank you. And you're one of them that I think I I hold in among the highest esteem, the impressive women in my life. If Maya, my fiance, ever listens to an episode of the podcast, I'll hope it's this one. You'll have to go to Uh, minute seven or wherever we are. 
<laughs> right, right. Where she can hear me say that she's the most impressive woman I've ever met in my entire life and how honored I am to be her partner. One thing I wanted to dive into as well, building on this, you have been able to balance in, an, in a very illustrious career in finance as a partner at Goldman Sachs. Your role is what most who are in financial services or even aware of financial services would call the pinnacle of success, the top of the mountain, if you will. You've been incredibly successful while balancing family and, and this passion for helping women advance, You know, being involved in scholars of finance, being philanthropically active, right, giving back to the community, the next generation, even outside of the, the walls of GS. Just given how successful you are, one thing I'd love to dive into is what's contributed to your success. What are some of the most important principles, paradigms, values, or lessons that have guided you throughout your career and that you think have led you to be as successful as you are? Well, thank you for that. Very, very kind intro. I would be remiss if I don't start by talking about my parents and the foundation that they set for me. Similar to your, to your mother's story, I have a different story with my parents, but just sort of the example that they set for me set the groundwork for my own sort of focus and hard work. And so I would say the core principle is really hard to distill, by the way. But for me, it's about being proud of what you do, how you do it, and then giving back. And the first part of sort of being proud of what you do and how you do it, that can mean many different things. And I would say in the early part of my career, it was actually predicated on making my parents proud and ensuring their sacrifices weren't in vain. And then over time, it actually became less about them and more about me and taking ownership of my career. And then now it's for my kids. And it's to be that example of hard work that I looked up to, to explain to them the incredible clients I get to have a privilege of working with and really showing them that no one succeeds alone, which then feeds into this concept of giving back. And I think as we've talked about over the years, giving back to your family, giving back to your community, giving back to Georgetown, which we haven't talked about, but sort of a passion of mine to continue to bring in more Georgetown Hoyas to Goldman Sachs, help them in any way that I can, because Georgetown gave me so much. And there's so many different ways to give it back and pay it forward. If I had to encapsulate it all, and it actually goes to something you started with, which is everybody needs to have a deeper mission. And that's so much of what we look for in our recruits, which is it's not so much, can you do Excel? It's what are you doing it for? Who are you doing it for? Because the, sort of the, the hours and the strain that you'll ultimately go through in those first couple of years, you need to have that deeper mission. So I was actually impressed that you started there because I think that's foundational to anyone's success. It's interesting that you unpack that, that the mission drives you through those years and relate back to that. Because the same is true as, you're, as you've heard from your clients who you help with these transactions. It is very true as an entrepreneur, building a business, building a company. I just spoke recently to a, a guy who in his 20s built a $60 million revenue, $20 million EBITDA like lighting business. And he said, for the first year, I was literally walking around with a suitcase and light bulbs. You know, and seven years later, he had a, a meaningful private equity transaction, you know, before the age of 30, practically. The hustle is, and the grind is real in the beginning. I want to come back to your point on what you look for in recruits. I want to actually pin that and come back to the recruiting front in a minute. What I want to dive into is this sense of mission that you have healthcare investment banking mm -hmm. for people in the industry, specifically in the vertical for people who aren't, would love to open up the aperture of what healthcare investment banking means, what the healthcare sector looks like. 
to start, tell us more about what interested you about healthcare investment banking in particular. And then what would you say are some of the most unique characteristics of the healthcare sector? Yeah, well, I have to be honest. I was a beggars can't be choosers applicant. So I wasn't necessarily dead set and desperate for being in healthcare. I didn't have a resume that lent itself to healthcare. Actually, in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, we don't even take science classes. So the last time I took science was high school. So definitely not purpose built to be a healthcare investment banker. But boy, it's easy to get behind it. And I think we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. We get to work with companies that are touching patients and saving lives every day, multiple times, millions of times a day. That's our great privilege. And so as it relates to healthcare banking and sort of the healthcare sector more broadly, it's incredibly dynamic. I would say it's unique because they're focused on innovation, right? Our companies are constantly trying to find a slightly better answer to either an indication that doesn't yet have one or a pharmaceutical solution to a cancer that doesn't yet have a solution or some other solution that's in desperate need. And yet we live in an environment that's full of rules and regulations. And so sometimes just coming up with that next great drug or that next great device isn't enough. So as you think about the entrepreneur journey, it actually can be pretty long for a healthcare entrepreneur, which can be frustrating because they might find that they found the best answer for a particular solution, and yet they don't have reimbursement, they have to get approved, they have to run a trial, which all is necessary, right? Before you're ever gonna ingest anything, or implant anything, you need to make sure that it's safe. And so all those rules and regulations are necessary, but that does elongate the pathway from idea to revenues, which may be different than the six-year story you described on the lighting side. And companies have to be nimble and adjust. It's a really unique and dynamic industry full of innovation. I absolutely hope it continues to be full of innovation. And thank you for what you do to make that innovation possible and to enable it in the system. How did the impacts of the pandemic reshape or redefine healthcare and the role of healthcare investment banking as well? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. In many ways, I actually think the pandemic reminded the world, reminded investors how critical healthcare companies are, period. And I would say it started with the companies, my clients, that make ventilators and the fact that they were in, in dire demand in many hospitals, including in New York City. And so it started there. You're then reminded of all of the people, including my brother, who's a surgeon, that are on the front lines that shifted from being a surgeon to being at the front lines in the ICU dealing with the patients that were coming in. And then you extend through the whole healthcare ecosystem and you have these amazing companies, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, who within months came up with a vaccine, which I still find fascinating that they were able to do that so quickly. And ultimately, the companies like Abbott, Hologic, Becton Dickinson, they, they came up with the diagnostic tests that we all probably have in our cupboards at this point and are what allowed us to get back to everyday life. And so when you think about each of those touch points along the way and the fact that it's everywhere around us, I would say it was really more of a reminder of the criticality of the healthcare sector. And then from a banking perspective, really nothing's changed. Yes, there was a bolus of capital raised in 2020, 2021, and even towards the beginning of last year. So maybe a, a slight renewed interest from investors in healthcare. But I would say really, for the most part, nothing changed from an investment banking perspective. 
it was more the fact that you noticed just all the different touch points that the pandemic brought to life in terms of the healthcare sector. I appreciate you sharing sort of how the healthcare system and the, and the sector itself has changed with the pandemic. Definitely heard similar stories from Maya. Like you mentioned, your brother, who's a surgeon, hearing some stories from his perspective, she was just starting her medical residence to get Stanford when the pandemic struck. She talked about the shortage of ventilators and how horrible that was and how frightening it was, right? As a medical provider, to not have those medical devices, that medical technology at sufficient scale to deal with these urgent problems. I'm glad that there's been increased interest and more interest in in health tech and med tech and the devices space because from my perspective, the need, the universe of need is still so large. When we talk to our students often, we remind them that more than 4 billion people, about 4 billion people live on less than $10 per day still in, in this world. Wow. You know, for folks like us who have had professional careers, you know, I talk about my pre-nuvo scans, right? Every summer going and doing a whole body MRI for an hour, you know, paying over the counter for that because, you know, it's important. It's a priority. I want to be there for my kids, but that sort of medical technology isn't available to 99% of the global population. And so I'm curious how you think about the growth of the healthcare sector. And, you know, for you, one thing I'd love to hear your perspective on, I'm sure you have a really special POV on this is how do you really see the healthcare sector growing to meet just the massive need that exists for you know millions and billions of people still, and how do we get there? No, it's a great question, and I think the good news is there is a tremendous amount of money going into continued innovation, trying to get the sort of to answer this challenge that we have, which is how do we get all this great healthcare innovation to as many people as possible? And so it has to start with the core of innovation, and that part is alive and well. And where do we see that? We see that everywhere from making implants smaller better. We're seeing that in using data and analytics to make devices smarter. So for example, somebody in a rural part of a country can have the data from their device go to the cloud and a physician that's sitting somewhere more in an urban setting is able to read the data, communicate with the patient, and then all the way to things like surgical robots, where first of all, they're allowing surgeries to be performed faster that then allow more access and ultimately get better patient outcomes. And so I just think there's quite a lot to be excited about in terms of where data analytics, even AI and AR are going to try to make healthcare more accessible, but we're probably in the, still in the early innings because some of these things are still very expensive. So even once you've built these amazing robots or amazing drugs, they're very expensive. So who can actually afford some of these things is something that we're all gonna have to work on But then the reality is all of these companies are dealing with challenges, right? We haven't talked about all of the challenges they face, which is supply chain. They can't seem to get the chips that they need for the products that they need that are for life-saving patient monitoring devices, for example, because the chips are in short supply. There aren't enough nurses working in the hospitals to allow for various procedures to get done. The cost of labor, the cost of everything has gone up, which is putting pressure on things like spending on innovation. So There's a lot of moving parts for all players in any industry right now. All those things I just talked about are relevant across industries. It's not a healthcare phenomenon, but healthcare is not immune to that. And so companies are going to have to continue to find ways to be more efficient and yet continue to drive innovation. 
I appreciate you servicing the challenges that these companies are facing that the sector is facing as well for us to keep those top of mind. Kind of building on that and the prior question about sort of the scale of healthcare and the accessibility and inclusivity, we'll say, of healthcare. Mm-hmm. If you were just to get a little more myopic to, to zoom in on 2023, just the year ahead of us, what are some of the particular trends or innovations that you're seeing right now that you're most excited about, that your clients are most excited about? I would say it's probably around remote technologies. And so as I think about where the types of devices that can be worn by a patient once they've left the hospital, for example, historically what would happen? You'd have a procedure, you would go home, and then at some point you have a follow-up appointment with a doctor. And there's not much in between, maybe a conversation here or there. Now you're getting to a place where you can have a small button or a small band that's capturing your vitals. Those vitals are then going to the cloud, going to a physician. So when they see on their dashboard something awry or, you know, Ross just had hip surgery, but he hasn't gotten out of bed for the last 36 hours, they're going to ping you and make sure you get up and start moving. That's amazing technology. And we're seeing that at sort of that level of just worn devices, but there's also chips that go inside of knees now. So when you get a knee implant, it used to be that you don't really know if after a bunch of sort of physical therapy, you hope that that knee is functioning and working, but that relies on the patient to do what they're supposed to do and to do their exercises. Now that chip is sending data all the time to physicians. And so they can, again, Mr. Overline, it looks like you haven't been to your physical therapy today. We encourage you to go do that. And so it's little things like that that sound simple, but that weren't done before until it was too late and then you needed another surgery. So are we going to see massive impact from that this year? No. But are we starting to see the signs of really using data and analytics to drive better outcomes? I would say we're going to definitely be seeing that more of that this year. Thanks for sharing. Shifting back over to the banking side of it, Mm -hmm. what you do in your day-to-day life, you started to mention this a little bit, some of the differences in the sort of time horizons of investment and deals and then the capital structure. Can you unpack a little bit more some of the unique intricacies of financing the healthcare sector, of financing the, the med tech sector? What are things that someone who's not investing in your particular space would benefit from knowing to better appreciate the unique aspects of your role within the bank? Yeah, I think the good news is there's a wide menu available to early stage medtech companies that are looking to raise capital. It tends to be just pure equity in the private setting. So think venture capital investing that helps begin the seed financing for a company. And as they evolve, The good news is there are incremental dollars available and incremental investors. So some investors that are looking more for the later stage growth investing, for example. And ultimately, where we really get plugged in is on the precipice of an IPO. So when a company now has a product that's been approved, that's been generating some revenue in medtech, for the most part, that's a little bit of what's required to be able to go public. We help take them public. And probably the best example of that I can think of is a company called Inspire out of Minneapolis that has an implantable device, I know from your hometown, and so an implantable device for sleep apnea. And they had a great product and it was generating, it had a track record and it was starting to grow. And we took them public. And now if you look at them, they're a seven or $8 billion company from 400 when we took them public a few years ago 
but it is a first class management team, incredibly methodical, focused on the right thing, which is patience and outcomes, and been penetrating that market to the point where now, I mean, they're, they're probably the best IPO in, in MedTech history when you look at them. So there is definitely a path from idea to touching millions of lives and capital along that spectrum to get there. And depending on where you're on that spectrum, you just find different pockets. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate the quick double click on the financing side. I'd love to come back to that mention of recruiting that you made earlier that we pinned. And I'd love to just shift us into recruiting. Mm-hmm. A lot of our students listening, you know, Goldman Sachs is at the top of the list of the firms that they would hope to work at post-collegiately. Would love to hear from your, your perspective. As a recruiter, you do a lot of active recruiting at Georgetown, as you mentioned. Yep. You talked about mission and purpose being something you look for when you're evaluating a candidate. What else immediately stands out to you when evaluating a candidate? What are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to start with somebody who's done their homework. You need someone that actually knows what the job is, has talked to enough people and done their homework and knows enough about investment banking. So it has to start there. But really is, for at least from my perspective and from a Goldman perspective, we're looking for the whole person. What drives them? What are they proud of? Because the days can be long, you do need to have that deeper mission that you're committed to. And then ultimately, authenticity, being yourself and having a genuine story and interest in the business that we do is really what we look for, rather than maybe sort of saying what you think you're supposed to say, people can get past that a little bit. And we really are looking for somebody who's well-rounded because the reality is the analysts on my team, they'll come to my meetings and sometimes I'm not in the room and they're talking to the CEO of a company. They just have to be able to carry a conversation. So we just need people that are able to have conversations and often it has nothing to do with the discounted cash flow. It has nothing to do with evaluation. It's just having interests outside of core finance that you're able to have conversations about. So I would say we tend to focus more on the whole person rather than can somebody do a DCF? Because we teach that. It's an apprenticeship where you're going to come be a sponge. We're going to teach you everything you need to know, but come in with an open mind, with the ability to work hard and to be a sponge and the rest will happen over time. I love it. I love it. And I'm sure this is really beneficial for our, especially our students listening. Because you're a partner, there are times where you're hiring someone at the associate level, at the VP level, right? More mid-level hires. For a lot of them are listening to this podcast too. As a senior leader in the the bank, what do you look for and how are you assessing post-entry-level hires, you know, associate VP levels who have a little more experience? How do you assess them differently and what are you looking for from them? It's an interesting question. I wouldn't say we're looking for anything foundationally different. If anything, you need to have that presence and that sort of personality, I would say, to begin with. It has to be a good match. But if you're coming in at a more senior level, by definition, you've had some work experience. Maybe it's related to banking, maybe it's not. But being able to translate how what that experience was can be helpful towards what it is that we're doing. And so For example, we hire people that used to be consultants, people that used to be lawyers, people that used to be doctors, believe it or not. And so being able to explain what it is that you're expert at that actually is going to be a helpful competency towards what it is that we do is going to be the key. And every story is different, so it's hard to give a generality, but that's probably what I would say. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. I'm curious for the students listening, 
as they're in the throes of recruiting season, do you have any quick tips you'd offer them beyond what you've already shared for recruiting into investment banking? Any other tips you'd give the students who are like, oh gosh, I'm listening to this and they're trying to learn how to get into Goldman Sachs and hopefully joining your group. What else would you share? For me, it's simple. And I'd say the same thing to them that I say to the one-on-one calls that I have, which is number one, you have to do your homework. You have to actually look into the business, understand at least at a high level what it is that we do. Second, and probably most importantly, talk to as many people as you can. And that means not just people that are working at a firm you want to work at, but actually upperclassmen, the people that had just been summer interns, the people that are going to be joining these institutions that you want to go work at, they're going to be the best resource because, first of all, they're on campus. Hopefully, you can track them down. And second of all, they just had the experience that you think you want to go have. So talking to them, hearing their experiences, understanding what it is they did, what it is that they think made them successful in their summer is really key. And then, of course, talk to the alumni at the firms that you're applying to. Our job, just to be clear, and I say this to all the Georgetown kids, is to bring as many Georgetown Hoyas to Goldman Sachs as possible. So we are here as a resource. So use us, reach out to us, and don't feel shy reaching out to more than one of us. In fact, reach out to more than one of us because the goal is to talk to as many people as possible so that you can then do the first thing I was talking about, which is building your own authentic story and showing a genuine interest in what we do, which is really hard to do when you've never done it before. And I appreciate that. So you can really only do it by talking to more people and understanding what the day-to-day looks like. Right, right. Switching a little bit to our executive mm-hmm. audience. You know, I mentioned we have students, early mid-career professionals, but oftentimes after these episodes, we'll hear from partners and C-suite executives at the top firms across asset classes and across verticals. What advice would you offer the senior leaders and executives, the managers listening for attracting talent and for developing talent and retaining talent? You know, what's sort of some of your best practices for bringing in the best and keeping them and helping them grow? I wish I had all the best practices for that. I guess what I tend to lean on is being present is half the battle. And so right now you'll see my door is closed because we're on the Zoom, but I'm in the office every day. If I'm not traveling, my door is always open. People know they can stop by about anything. They can call, they can text, they can stop by. And so it's about being present. It's about being accessible and probably maybe the most important listening. Sometimes I feel like many of myself included, we spend a lot of time just talking rather than actually listening to see what it is that's specifically on somebody's mind. And so making sure that you're listening for the cues or what might be top of mind for someone. Sometimes that can be in a group setting. We do some group lunches. We do group happy hours. But often it's better just one-on-one and there's only so much time of the day and we all have very full schedules, but finding that time to reach out to your team members, check in with them, listen to what might be top of mind for them, that I think goes a long way and also creates that connectivity, which then becomes this virtuous cycle when they can then feel comfortable coming to you. So those are at least a few of the things that, that come to mind from my perspective. Thanks for sharing us. I appreciate it. Checking the clock. We're already coming up on time. I want to ask you a couple of final questions. We'll move into a rapid fire round. I'll ask you a couple of quick questions without giving it too much thought to share the first thing sure. that comes to mind. Sound good? Yep. All right. First, any books, podcasts, documentaries, anything that you've read recently that you thought was super insightful and you'd recommend? 
Ooh, I'm reading a book about, I don't know the title. It's like 14 Talks by 14, I think is what it's called. And so for me, it's about making sure I'm doing right by my voice. I appreciate you suggesting a parenting book. Someone yesterday just asked me for a recommendation, and I said, Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work by the Gottmans. Maya and I are diving into that before we get married. Next, your proudest moment or proudest deal even throughout your career as a healthcare investment banker. Ooh, uh, that is tough. Honestly, my proudest moment may have been like two hours ago. And what I mean by that is I was on a Zoom with a client, with many people from the client on. I happened to join, as you're probably used to, five minutes late. So what had happened was my VP started the Zoom. And by the time I joined, he was already on the third slide and he was walking through it. And so maybe that's a bizarre thing to say because it's not a transaction. It's not a board meeting. It's not a tombstone of which we have many, but it's seeing somebody I've been working with for a very long period of time showcase that he's doing it and that he's going to be able to take my seat in the not too distant future. And so for me, that makes me proud because that's, it's all about the team. So now I should probably go tell him this after we end this podcast, but that's what it's about for me. It's not necessarily about the transaction. It's about the people that we surround ourselves with and the camaraderie and to see someone who's, by the way, a former Marine, who's now leading the charge and talking about medtech after only a few years with such fluency was really impressive to see. That's incredible. And I hope that he gets a chance to listen to this podcast and not only hear your private compliment, but hear the public compliment as well. That's there for him. Last question. Mm-hmm. Yas, you have been so generous with the time that you've given to Scholars of Finance. We've been on so many calls. You've been a generous donor. You've spoken to our Georgetown chapter and the students and women of SOF. You've given me a lot of advice on how to grow the organization. What stood out to you about Scholars of Finance and our mission? And why would you encourage others to get involved? Your core values, and I know you think and iterate on them constantly. And so you're passionate about it, but it's hard not to follow them. And for me, the key core value that I focus on is integrity and doing things the right way. I think that's such a core foundational way of not just working, but living. And so it's also how I want my kids to behave and something that I instill at home. But honestly, what really stood out, if I had to be honest, it's, I think I've said this to you in private, I'll say it in public, it's you. I find your leadership to be so authentic, so genuine, so all in that you make people want to follow you. And it just so happens that you have a mission that is wonderful to boot. And so that's something that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention. Well, Yas, you're incredibly kind. You're incredibly generous. Thank you so much for your support of the mission of Scholars of Finance. Um, Anything that we do here, as is the case with anything that matters in history, is a team effort. And we're so grateful that you're on the the SOF team, you know, as well as the GS team and the Georgetown team. We're very grateful for your support and your leadership. Thank you so much for the time today. We'd love to have you on again soon. We have so many more questions to ask. Thank you, Yas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you have an amazing week ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Ross. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org 
or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.